Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. Today, I want to talk about the role of forgiveness, not only in our lives, but also in our society. Many of us who are Christians may have a notion about what it means to forgive and to be forgiven in our daily lives. Jesus Christ commanded us to forgive our brother, depending on the translation, not seven times 77. It could be 70 times seven, depending on the translation. Either way, he commanded us to forgive our brother a lot. He gave us the parable of the prodigal son's father, who forgave his son without even waiting for an apology from his son. Christ told us frequently, but most notably in the Lord's Prayer, to forgive our trespassers if we are to be forgiven for our own trespasses. He told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And in the most supreme and selfless sacrifice ever, he died on the cross in atonement for our sins, even pleading that we be forgiven for we know not what we do. If you seek to live your life by his example, then you know (laughs) that none of this is or will ever be easy. However, is it possible that we have misunderstood or misconstrued forgiveness in our relationships and in our society? Maybe. And so today I welcome Reverend Matthew Ichihashi Potts of the Episcopal Church. Reverend Potts is a plumber professor of Christian morals and the Pusey minister in the Memorial Church at Harvard University, where he has served on the faculty since 2013. His teaching focuses on sacramental and moral theology, ministry and pastoral theology, religion and literature, and preaching. Now, the reason I wanted to bring on Reverend Potts is that he's written an enlightening new book entitled Forgiveness, an Alternative Account. I mean, it's really a deep read. He draws upon theology, philosophy, social ethics, and even literature to re-examine or maybe rediscover forgiveness. And for me, it was a deep, careful kind of Lenten meditation. And indeed, there's a lot to ponder and reflect upon. And while there may be areas where I may not necessarily agree because I'm looking at this as a Catholic, I found a lot of things interesting for me to think about because I am a Catholic and I'm human, you know? And so Reverend Potts, I think, helps us to consider what is and what is not forgiveness and how we can practice it in our own lives and in our society. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that is unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about in this podcast, and that's okay. That's healthy. I think we need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and also by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Matthew Potts is up next. Matt, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really happy to be here. The title of your book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, caught my attention. I mean, I thought an alternative account to what in the beginning? So could you explain the title? Because I thought it was subtle, but yet thought-provoking. 
Uh, that's interesting. You know, it's my editor's title. It's not my title. <laughs> so, no, honestly, I can tell you, I'll tell you what that title is and what I think it means. I'll also tell you what my title was that they didn't like, but that I still okay. like, right? Okay. So I think forgiveness and alternative account means two things. In this book, I'm trying to give an alternative account of forgiveness. I'm trying to tell a different story of what forgiveness is. I have some worries about the forms of forgiveness that we see dominant in Western culture and in Christian culture, maybe especially. And so I wanted to tell a different story of what forgiveness could be, but one that is also faithful, at least to my mind, faithful to the Christian tradition, right? Not one that Mm. you see some folks wanting to jettison forgiveness because of the harmful forms it sometimes takes in our culture. And I don't want to jettison forgiveness. It's too central to Christian life and Christian moral life, in my opinion. But I do want to think about, is the form of forgiveness that we have today the only one that's possible? Is it what Mm. Jesus is talking about in the New Testament? Is it what we see in the long tradition since Jesus? Are there other resources that we can use to develop a different story of what forgiveness can be in our lives? So that's one reason why it's an alternative account. I think the other reason, like there's a little pun with alternative account, which is like, Forgiveness is also a different way of giving an account of things or taking account of wrongdoing or holding wrongdoers accountable, maybe is a different way to put it. When you think about accounts, it's a a word that carries a lot of different meanings. And I think my editor, who's a great editor and had a good idea for the title of this book, that's that's the title that she came up with, and I'm glad for it. My original title was Mourning for Forgiveness because I wanted to think about uh, my own pun was on the word mourning. Because I want to think about letting go of a form of forgiveness, which I think has become harmful, so that we can come to forgiveness and come to new life. A new kind of forgiveness can take root in our in Christian life. And also because I see forgiveness as an act of lamentation and grief. It's a moral response to wrongdoing, which takes as its first principle that the wrong can't be undone. Like the way mourning like understands something as unable to be undone or irrevocable forgiveness tries to move forward into a future, into a just future. And this is really important into a just future, acknowledging that what has been done cannot be undone. I worry that a lot of the forms of forgiveness that we have in the world and also other forms of justice or of taking account or making people accountable are bad or wrongheaded attempts to undo what cannot be undone rather than to create new life in the wake of wrongdoing. So you open your book by recounting the massacre of the Emanuel Nine. It happened back in June of 2015. And for our listeners who may not know or may not recall, the Emanuel Nine are the nine slain members of the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina. They were shot to death during a Bible study by a white supremacist who was hoping to set off a race war. In fact, my family knew some of the families who lost loved ones. We knew members of the church. Oh, I can't just tell you how that was just such a shocking and raw and traumatic experience for me, not just for the personal, you know, connection, but also just feeling quite vulnerable just as a Black person in America. So I'm wondering, why did you open your book with this massacre and its aftermath? A few reasons, mostly because there were very public and well-known scenes of forgiveness in the wake of it. Dylan Roof is the murderer. Yes. And at his arraignment, some of the Charleston surviving family members, not all of them, and it's important to say not all of them, and I'll say why I think that's important in a minute, but some of the surviving family members extended offers of forgiveness to Dylan Roof. And a couple of things happened after they did this. First, that narrative kind of took off and it became the narrative of all the Charleston families, right? Oh, the Charleston, in the national media, like mm-hmm. the story was the Charleston families 
have forgiven Dylan Roof, which was not what happened. A couple of family members did, not everyone, Mm -hmm. which I think signals the anxiety, the urge within the national media to impose a narrative of forgiveness, maybe where one wasn't there yet or upon people who had not asked for it yet. That was one thing. And then the other thing that happened is some folks were worried that this was a problematic offer of forgiveness. Dylan Roof has not, and to my knowledge, still has not expressed the least amount of repentance or remorse for this. And people were saying, like, ought we to offer forgiveness unconditionally when a person has not repented? Like, what's the moral value in that? And because of that, because of these two reactions to this situation, first, the anxiety of one group of folks to, like, to impose a narrative forgiveness where one had not been asked for yet. And another, which was saying, like, well, forgiveness is wrong here. Forgiveness is actually the wrong thing for these families to do. I wanted to listen to what those family members who did offer forgiveness were saying and how they were describing what their forgiveness meant and see if there might be clues in what they were saying that could help me understand what they were actually offering. You know, not my expectations or the expectations of national media about what it would mean, but what did they mean in that offer? How do people conceive and practice forgiveness in today's society in your estimation? Yeah, to me, I think there are two problems with forgiveness, two main problems with forgiveness. I mean, you know, I wrote a whole book about this so we can get into other problems I have, right? But I think that the ways in which forgiveness becomes dangerous or difficult, the way that forgiveness can sometimes bear out as further harm upon victims, which is the thing I'm really worried about, right, is when a couple of things happen. First, I think when we talk about forgiveness, we often also mean the abatement of anger or giving up anger. So you say to somebody, I forgive you, what you're kind of implying by that is I'm not angry at you anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay. Or like, oh, it's okay. I'm not holding this grudge anymore, right? And I think that's worrisome because that's telling victims that they don't need to be angry anymore. And I think the people who are critical or suspicious of the Charleston forgiveness, the Charleston Office of Forgiveness was, how could you not be angry anymore? Like you just said, right? Like, well, we're not supposed to be angry. Of course, of course, there's still anger. And I wanted to ask the question, why is it that we have associated the loss of anger or the giving up of anger with the offer of forgiveness? Is it possible that there can be forgiveness while you still have anger? I mean, because you can be angry at people you love. Forgiveness is an act of love that, that you can have healthy forms of anger and harmful forms of anger. Anger is complicated. But I don't think that giving up anger entirely is something that we should ask victims. And I think when we demand of victims that they give up anger, that becomes problematic. To me, it seems like a cheap piece. You know, this trauma happened, but I need you to forgive and not, you know, still have anything that makes me feel that there's no peace there or that I still have to deal with it. And I think that was also, I will tell you, I remember with the um, Botham Jean case out of Dallas where the young man was sitting in his apartment and Amber Geiger, a police officer, opened the door and shot him in his own apartment. And there was some rage when Botham Jean's brother, I think, forgave her, so to speak, during the sentencing hearing, I suppose, and how the media just ran with that, ran with that, ran with that. And I will tell you, I remember seeing among many Black people on social media and in private conversations being outraged, not so much that his brother did that, but that the way the media portrayed it, and they felt like it's almost conditioning these acts of violence against our community as something that we have no right to have an angry response to, or that we must immediately forgive and is perceived in a way to just be doormats for the world. So if that's not the right way 
for forgiveness, like as you know, people are conceiving and practicing it. I mean, one of the one of the authors I look at in my book and review is a early modern philosopher named Joseph Butler, and what he says is he says anger is actually crucial to us because anger tells us when we're being harmed, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, we can't just do anything that we want when we're angry. We have to behave like moral persons, but the feeling of anger is actually crucial because that lets us know we've been harmed, right? And that's mm-hmm. why it's important to acknowledge the anger of victims. Because if a victim is angry, what they are saying is this harm still stands. So a family member who says, I forgive you, but I am angry. What that should say to us is this person is not seeking retribution, retaliation, but the harm still stands because they are still angry. They have still been harmed, right? And so when you see a national media or a philosopher saying, oh, there's no more anger, there's no more anger. What they're actually saying is, oh, there's nothing wrong here. Everything's fine now. Forgiveness happened. Everything's fine now. And that is not what the Charleston families were saying. In fact, they were saying the contrary. They were saying there is something deeply wrong here. Do not misunderstand our willingness to forgive with us saying that everything is okay. It is not okay. Despite the fact that it is not okay, we are forgiving. But it is not okay. And our anger is a sign of that. So you mentioned that there are two wrong ways that we're doing forgiveness wrong. So what is the second wrong way? The other thing is that forgiveness can be misunderstood as abatement of anger. It can also be misunderstood or collapsed into or confused with reconciliation. Like when I say I forgive you, what I'm also saying is that we are ready to restore relationship now. And I don't think that necessarily needs to be the case. If you haven't done the things necessary to earn my relationship, to earn my trust back, why should I be in a relationship with you, (laughs) right? Reconciliation, the minimum requirement for reconciliation is that both people in the relationship have to be safe. That's the minimum, right? Mm. And if I don't trust you to keep me safe, why would I reconcile with you, right? But I might still be able to forgive you even if if I'm not ready to reconcile with you. So this is what I say forgiveness is in my book. I say forgiveness is non-retaliation. It's not believing that retaliatory violence undoes the initial harm. It's trying to move on from that harm towards a new future. But that new future may be one where I am still angry at you because we have not righted wrongs right? Your hurt is not going to right my wrongs. I need something else. You know, if you hit me and I hit you back, that doesn't right any wrongs necessarily. That's just a different kind of retaliatory sort of retribution, right? Mm -hmm. I think forgiveness says, I choose not to retaliate, but I might still be angry at you because there still might be some work that we need to do, or we as a culture need to do, or you as an individual need to do to make this right. And also like, I'm not going to retaliate, but that doesn't mean we're going to be friends. <laughs> like We don't need to restore relationship yet. If you earn my trust back, maybe we can reconcile and restore relationship. All I have promised when I say I forgive you is I am not going to respond to the harm you have caused me with harm in return. And to me, that is really the consistent Christian message because this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is love your enemy. This is, you know, bless those that curse you. I don't think when Jesus says love your enemy, Jesus is talking about a warm feeling inside towards your enemy. Right. I don't think Jesus is saying, be happy and like have, you know, I think Jesus is saying, when you receive violence, do not respond in kind. So you establish forgiveness is a refusal to retaliate against another for a crime or offense. Yes. Then what is the role of memory or as the term you might say, rememory in seeking and securing closure, healing and justice? I mean, it's crucial, right? I think that, that we have this saying in our culture, which again, to me, is a signal of how far off the rails our conceptions of forgiveness have gotten, where we say forgive and forget, mm-hmm. right? Like as if forgiveness was pretending that the bad thing never happened. Right. That's not what mourning looks like. As I said, I like to think about forgiveness as mourning. When someone you love has been lost, what you need to do is figure out how to live without them. 
you don't pretend they were never part of your life. You have to mm-hmm. move on and try to live without them, right? Forgiving and forgetting can't do anything but erase the harm that victims have felt and suffered. Like if you said to the Charleston families, oh, forgive and forget, how can they forget? <laughs> like beloved family members are not at the Thanksgiving dinner table with them. Mm-hmm. Like they can never forget this. To imply that the only way they can actually forgive, you know, when Jesus commanding them to forgive, to tell them you will only have sufficiently forgiven when you forget what happened, that can't be for forgivenesses. And I can't believe that that would be what Jesus is commending to us. I think instead, forgive and remember. Like mourning is, is an act of memory. We remember what happened to us. How can we forget what happened to us? In fact, what happened to us is so grave, our lives going forward can only proceed from the fact of its having happened, right? Mm -hmm. But our life, our faith as Christians is that we can build new life, even in the wake of death, even in the wake of loss and wrong. We can build new life. It doesn't mean the wrongdoing goes away. I mean, one of the things I suggest in the book, you know, is that the risen Jesus still has wounds, right? The risen Jesus is a different kind of Jesus than the one that died fully risen, but still the disciples and those in the resurrection community are dealing with a different reality than they were a few days before his death. And as you know, it's the season of Lent. As we come to Holy Week, this is one of the things we have to reckon with. Like the fact of that death, the fact of that crucifixion is not erased. On the contrary, what we do every Sunday when we go to church is remember. I mean, the name for the Eucharistic prayer in Greek is this is the remembrance, right? We are remembering every week. Mm-hmm. Growing in a new life, growing into reconciliation, growing in forgiveness is an act of memory. And so forgiving or forgetting, I think, is just is right out. It's the wrong approach. We'll be back in a minute. It seems like we have a hard time dealing with pain and anger and the role it plays in the process of forgiveness. It seems like we want to jump to a place where the person who has experienced the trauma, experienced the harm, has no beef, I guess. So with all this processing of pain, of anger, or mourning, how does that help us? I mean, is there an end part to forgiveness where we are no longer mourning? Or can forgiveness happen with us still for the rest of our lives mourning what happened? Yeah. I think forgiveness is a process. I don't think it's an event. Even the question of anger, you know, I think that for victims of trauma, emotions are volatile, right? And not predictable, right? Like you might not be angry every day for 10 years after a traumatic event and then wake up one day angry. That's just the way the human heart works. And I would hate to be a pastor to someone and say to them, I guess you lost your forgiveness today because you woke up angry, right? No, that's just, Mm. it's a sign that you're a human and that you're hurt. As a pastoral response to someone, I think you have to allow anger I think if your question is like, where does our discomfort around anger come from? I mean, it comes from things like structural violence, like white supremacy. I think that if you are a person in power, it's really good if your victim is not angry anymore, Mm. (laughs) right? Because if they're not angry anymore, then there's no wrong to fix, right? And so I think we should be suspicious of white European Christian theological tradition that has come to associate the abatement of anger with forgiveness, because who does that bear out on? It bears out on you know, people who have traditionally been marginalized, women and people of color and others who have been on the wrong side of a lot of Christian theology and Christian history, pretty convenient for those in power that, oh, and by the way, forgiveness means you're not angry anymore. So right. remember, Jesus said, forgive 70 times, seven times, right? <laughs> like you, That means don't be angry at me. Don't be angry at me. Rather than acknowledging that victims can offer forgiveness, but have legitimate claims to redress and be angry, right? Mm. I mean, peaceful protest, I would say, I mean, you think about like, 
and I don't want to voice the language of forgiveness on anybody who does not want it. And so I'm, right. I want to be careful when I say this, but you know, the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020 after the yes. murder of George Floyd, right? When people are peacefully protesting in the streets, expressing anger, expressing raw anger, but also like not going out and committing murders in response, peacefully protesting in the streets, that's non-retaliation. It's expressing anger. It's peaceful. It's asking to build a new world. It's demanding justice in the future, but not suggesting that justice will be built on the backs of a retributive farm or retaliatory violence. For me, that can operate and look a lot like what forgiveness might be if we were to reconceive forgiveness differently, if it weren't about telling victims they can't be angry or that they must reconcile before they're ready, but were instead about acknowledging the moral courage of folks who are willing to stand up and be angry and demand redress without resorting to violence. You know, that is such a a very deep point, and you make that in the book. And one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, I saw so many of my fellow Catholics responding to Black rage, that demonstration of Black rage without, you know, without it being retaliatory as a threat, as a threat, as they were doing it wrong, as they still were disturbing the peace, so to speak. And it, it just was peculiar to me because I, again, I felt like you're asking for this lazy piece that requires nothing of you. You know, so you mentioned when you talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, sometimes I think we we do conflate them. Yeah. What needs to occur, though, in order for reconciliation to be possible or or when should forgiveness facilitate reconciliation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that forgiveness is a step towards reconciliation. Mm. But I don't think it's a necessary step. You might forgive without ever being reconciled to someone in this life. Because, again, I think especially for victims, especially for sufferers of harm and wrongdoing or abuse, to force someone back into a relationship where they are not safe, that's a sin. That's a moral wrong. And we can't ask that people. And reconciliation is a two-way street. The other person might not ever get there. They might remain a threat. And you can't ask someone to reconcile with someone who's a threat to them. Mm. However, I think that if there's going to be reconciliation, the kind of commitment to non-retaliation is important. So one of the people that I talk about in my book is a retired professor from the University of Notre Dame, where I did my undergrad, who's a Mennonite peacemaker, but he teaches at Notre Dame. He's a really famous peace builder named John Paul Lederach. And he's gone into several post-conflict situations where, you know, there are two sides and both sides are deeply hurt and deeply wounded. And, you know, lots of trauma on both sides and reciprocal violence. And he says, if you get into one of those situations, if you go into a space like that and encourage people to reconcile too fast, you lose all credibility. Because what you're suggesting to them is that you do not see how deeply they're harmed. Like what you need to do is let them be where they are. Let them hurt. Acknowledge their hurt. Like let them not trust the other side. Because why would they trust the other side if that other side has been hurting them all these years? And he said, you just got to be patient and acknowledge that that's where they are. And then if reconciliation comes, it has to come from that point of acknowledging how deep the harm is. Easy or, as you've been saying, like cheap reconciliation, cheap peace, all that does is erase the reality of people's experience, which is an experience of harm. He says you have to be patient. You have to go slow. He calls it the gift of pessimism. Like you have to know how unlikely this is because that means you know how deeply people are hurting. And it's only when you know how deeply people are hurting that you can actually affect reconciliation. You know, for myself, it's interesting. If you look at the Christian New Testament, Jesus tells us to forgive a lot, right? It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in Jesus's teachings. Christian's job is to forgive. 
But reconciliation is God's work. That doesn't mean that we ought not to work towards reconciliation. I think we absolutely ought to. But you know, in the New Testament, we are told to forgive, but then we're also told that God is reconciling all things to God's self through Jesus Christ, that the agent of reconciliation is Jesus Christ. And I think there also might be a spiritual humility for us when we are willing to forgive someone, even if we're not ready to reconcile with them, even if we acknowledge that it's a two-way street and that other person might not be safe for me. And so I'm going to wait for Jesus and God's infinite love to affect a reconciliation that my human heart doesn't have the power to affect in this lifetime. What my human heart can do is turn away from retaliation. And that's what Jesus has asked of me. Yeah. Applying these principles to, I think, the panorama of past and present evils whew, can be overwhelming. <clears throat> you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Holocaust, the genocide, the mass shootings, the terrorism. I I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. But I also... Imagine that forgiveness would look different and the path of that to, mm-hmm. if we ever reach reconciliation, would look different. But as we're working through some of these things, people talk about recompense, yep. right? How do we measure and look at what was lost and can we make recompense? And so I am wondering, how does that work with forgiveness? Does forgiveness necessitate that kind of recompense? What does that look like? Yeah. That's a good question. I think it's a hard question. I, I mean, so much of the way we think about justice is that a harm done requires a harm in return, right? And you can even see the way that works out in very unjust ways in, for example, the American criminal justice system, right? Where every offense requires some kind of punishment, right? And that punishment is what the justice is. Like, unless you are punished, justice has not been done, right? And mm-hmm. you can see how, again, the same kind of agents of white supremacy and power have structured our system of justice to make punishments severe and extreme and to fall upon certain parts of our population in incredibly burdensome and awful ways, right? Mm-hmm. This is because this idea, oh, justice isn't done unless we punish somebody for what they've done, right? But there are other notions of justice which are not about retributive punishment as what justice looks like. Justice could also be figuring out a way for the community to move forward, like finding, making a way forward, making a life where there is death, making good where there is wrongdoing. I think it takes a lot because these intuitions are so deep with us and so deeply ingrained in the Western tradition, but we can shake loose from the idea that recompense is the only form of justice that's possible for us, right? And I want to be clear, like that doesn't mean that folks who have been harmed aren't entitled to redress. I think they are right? Mm -hmm. But I think if your aim is we are going to undo what has been done to you, in some cases, that's not possible, right? Like if you steal $5 from me, you can give me $5 back. But if you killed my brother, there is no recompense. That's why we have to start with mourning. We actually cannot give back what has been taken, but Mm -hmm. we have to figure out a way to live. And so the question of redress becomes less about paying back what has been lost, especially when that thing can't be compensated. And instead saying, okay, since the thing cannot be compensated, how do we build a life for you? to move forward fruitfully and usefully into the future. It may be a life that may be full of sadness and difficulty and struggle because you have suffered this grave harm, but mm-hmm. there's certainly things that we can do to help you and support you on your way. I mean, one place I think about this, and I'm, there's a colleague of mine here at the Divinity School at Harvard who's working on these things and we're having a, a public conversation in a couple of weeks about it, is thinking about reparations for slavery, right? Mm-hmm. In this country, right? There is no compensation. We cannot pay back. We as a country, as a nation, the harm that was done cannot be compensated. But the fact that it can't be compensated doesn't mean you throw up your hands and say like, oh, well, then we can't do anything. Of course we can do things that would push us towards a more just world, that would be a form of justice. 
provide reparations in a way not that undoes the harm that was passed because that can't be undone but tries to create a new and more just and more livable world especially for people who have been the victims of harm you know the whole thing of reparations people get so angry about it and i mean i even if we set aside slavery I mean, once African-Americans were citizens, they lost their rights, their liberty, their property, even their lives due to laws or lack of laws on the federal, state, and municipal level. I mean, it's just really huge. And yet, sometimes I wonder when people say, oh, there is no none of this systemic stuff, if it's a way to say there was no real harm done to you. There is no harm that we can trace to present day, and therefore there's nothing to be done. You know, but if you say, yeah, we could trace this, we could look at this and then start to talk about, you know, what kind of almost I, I want to say bandages could be put on these wounds that will help the healing. I mean, I think that to me, this is another place where the notion of grief or mourning becomes really effective. Right. Mm. Or forgiveness as related to this topic of grief or mourning as acknowledging that which can't be undone. Because, what again, when reparations is about like undoing that which is past or paying you back or paying people back or paying someone back what was taken from them, it's just not possible with a crime as grave as the crime of slavery and the crime of Jim Crow and the crime of white supremacy in this country, right? Mm -hmm. But what would it mean to actually show how deeply we are mourning our history, right? Like, how could we convey to people that we as a nation are truly grief-stricken over what we imposed upon the backs of Black people in this country? Like, what would that amount look like? We don't need to give enough money to, to pay everything back because we can't. But what? how much would it take to show that we are truly mourning what we did? Because this is my worry for us is like when folks become enraged about right, what you actually communicate to folks. This is John Paul Lederach again. What you're actually telling folks is, oh, I don't acknowledge your harm. You're saying, oh, we need to move on. Move on. Just move on. Move on. What you're actually telling folks is, is your deep pain is something that's not important to me. Mm. Right? Because we're not going to move on unless we do pay attention to how deep these wrongs are, how deep these histories of trauma are, and saying, oh, it's not fair to pay back of money. All the, the claims are made about reparations. They all fall into like a simple arithmetic problem of we owe you this, we'll pay you then, and it'll be all over, right? And that's not what reconciliation and not what forgiveness is about. On the contrary, forgiveness is about like, there is no math problem. The math mm-hmm. doesn't work. We need to figure out how to live with this deep history of trauma. And the only way we can live with this deep history of trauma is remember it and acknowledge it and attempts to erase it are just going to make it worse. So what reparations is an act, again, of memory, of us saying, we remember, this was real, Mm -hmm. this happened, we are culpable for this, guilty of this, and we grieve it. And we can only move on if we grieve it. If we grieve it. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. How does the Catholic Church view forgiveness in ways that are similar and also are different than your own views that you shared just now? That's a good question. I mean, for a better answer to that question, you probably need to ask a Catholic theologian who (laughs) read my book, right? (laughs) But I'll tell you that, you know, a lot of the folks I lean most heavily upon are Roman Catholic thinkers, right? Not all of them, but one person who I look at very closely is Juliana Norwich, who's Mm. a holy woman of medieval England. And, you know, she lived before the Reformation and is a favorite theologian of mine. Another person who's very influential in my reading, especially later in the book, is Hans Urs von Balthasar, the Swiss theologian. And he has a line from the Theodrama where he says, forgiveness is not the result of some achievement. It's because any such achievement is impossible. Right? It, mm. it's, I don't know if I have the quote exactly right there, but he has this point of like, oh, forgiveness is, is not the reward we get 
for having undone the past. Forgiveness is us starting from the point of saying, oh, we can't undo the past. We need to move forward into a future and trust, have faith that there is new life in this future with God's help and with the grace of Jesus Christ. Another one of the things I look at is a person who had a relationship to the Roman Catholic tradition. It's hard to know whether she actually converted to Roman Catholicism at the end of her life, but the French thinker Simone Weil, who was raised Jewish and for most of her life was Jewish, may have had a deathbed conversion to Roman Catholicism, but was deeply committed to Christ in her writings. And she actually talks about sort of how violence is almost like gravity in its necessity. Like when you hurt someone, they hurt you back. It's almost like a chain reaction. And you get into these cycles of violence. You get into these cycles of retributive harm. And we see this all over the world, all around us. Like this is actually the nature of how violence works. And we felt that in ourselves often when we are hurt, like your initial instinct is to strike back. It's a human feeling. And I think it's one we ought not to demonize. It's something that's in our human constitution. But then she says, but then sometimes grace happens. Like this chain reaction, the cycle of violence is just stopped because someone says, I'm not going to harm you back. And that is the movement of grace in our lives. And I think that that's how grace can be understood to move in our lives. I don't know why someone like those Charleston families who did forgive, what in them inspired them to make that offer of forgiveness. But I think inspire is the right verb to use because I think Mm -hmm. that is the movement of the spirit within them. And I think it's important, again, that we listen to the fact that they were also expressing anger. They were also not interested in reconciling with Dylan Roof. So I don't want to, again, I don't want to oversimplify that offer, but I think that grace, and I think this is fairly standard Christian theology, grace is the movement of the spirit in our lives. And there are moments when, against all expectation, we see a person refrain from attributive violence and put a stop to something that could become a cycle of endless violence. So much of our conversation has been around grave trauma in our society, massacres, genocide, racism. Yeah. But we also know there's a need for forgiveness where maybe it's not that kind of violence, but there's forgiveness in friendship and families in our personal lives. From that angle, I mean, why do we need to forgive? And why do we need to be forgiven, in your opinion? Yeah. And is there a difference between that intimate nucleus or the societal one? <laughs> I mean, I think there's a difference just because the harms we've been talking about are really ones where the loss is irrevocable, right? Like I said, if you kill my brother, you can't bring him back. Right. But you know, when my kids, if my kids are arguing and one hits another one, then we can do some things like I'm not going to let them hit the other one back. Right. But like that's a, they're harms which can be redressed in a more reasonable way. I do think though, like the idea of forgiveness as if we define it the way I want to define it as allowing for anger and being skeptical of easy reconciliation, but also turning away from violence. You know, when I parent my kids, that is what I want them to do. I want them to turn away from reciprocal violence. I also want them to be skeptical of cheap reconciliation because I don't want them to be taken advantage of, (laughs) right? And I also want them to trust their instincts. If they still feel angry, then understand that. Understand why you feel angry. Being angry doesn't give you a license to do anything you want with your anger, right? Mm. Like I said, turn away from violence. But if you still feel angry, that means something is still going on for you. And you need to process that in a healthy way. It may mean processing it with the person that you're angry at. It may mean, you know, you have an anger management issue and you may process it with a therapist. Anger is a real thing and not a necessarily innocent thing. But I don't want to, especially, you know, from because this is all gendered as well, especially for my daughter, I'm very wary of telling her that she's not allowed to be angry, that she has to give up her anger. I actually want her to trust that anger, but I want her to trust it thoughtfully and reflectively and know what it's saying to her. I think the other place that's important is in self-forgiveness. I think for many of us, forgiving ourselves is often harder than forgiving other people. 
And again, thinking about forgiveness is turning away from harm. It's okay to be angry with ourselves for something we've done, but we shouldn't harm ourselves. We shouldn't pile harm upon harm, right? The idea of reconciling with yourself is more complicated because we're just one person, right? But you know, if we think of forgive and forget, or if I forgive myself, that's saying it's all okay. Sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes I really did something wrong that I need to make right. But it doesn't do to turn that into self-loathing or self-abuse. I don't think God would want that for me. I don't think Jesus wants that for me. I think it's okay for me to take ownership of my actions and try to make them right. But if that becomes a habit or a pattern of self-harm, where I refuse to forgive myself because I want to punish myself, because I feel like I deserve punishment, then that's not the kind of forgiveness that I would think is best for us. I think a forgiveness where we no longer want to punish ourselves, but we do still say, oh, but things do need to be made right. That's kind of threading the careful needle of self-care and responsibility. Mm, So much to think about here. Just forgiveness is a heavier word, a deeper word, (laughs) you know, a lot for us to explore. And especially as we go into Holy Week and we're thinking about what Jesus suffered and how Jesus died. And for us as Catholics, that that continued suffering is something that we meditate on as well. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to maybe say to us as we wrap up forgiveness. I don't think so. I'm really grateful for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, every time I, I have a conversation, like something new and emerges, because you're right, it is such a, a rich and complicated and demanding topic. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right, especially as we, as we move toward Holy Week and to the events of Good Friday, even for, you know, the guy who wrote the book on it, like there's a lot to meditate on and to think about and to learn from the Good Friday story and from Jesus' example. And so thanks for this conversation and for helping me to continue to learn about what forgiveness is and can be. Thank you, Matthew. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. This is the last episode of season two of the Gloria Purvis podcast. And I want to thank you for supporting the podcast and listening to the episodes and sharing it with your friends and supporting the podcast by supporting America Media. You can keep up with me on Twitter and Instagram and all social media and in the pages of America. And I'll keep you in tune of what's happening next. <laughs>